0: Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Santa Clara University Business School management professor, the late Andre Del once observed that the reason that any high-ranking business leader would ever jeopardize their career by acting dishonestly or even criminally always boils down to hubris and greed. He said, everybody knows what's ethical, what's right and what's wrong, but it's easy to be seduced by power and wealth. And unless you have a well-developed spiritual compass, power corrupts. What Del is really referring to here is character. Having such well-defined values that we won't wobble under high stress or pressure and routinely avoid disastrous outcomes. It might surprise you to learn that a lot of people who make it to the C-suite these days inevitably flame out when their character is tested and proves to be gelatinous. From 2012 to 2016, for example, there was a 36% increase in the number of CEOs fired for fraud, bribery, insider trading, and more. And in 2018, CEO dismissals for ethical lapses exceeded dismissals for financial performance or board struggles for the first time in history. My guest today is world-renowned performance psychologist, Dr. Jim Lohr. He's the co-founder of Johnson & Johnson's Human Performance Institute, and the author of 16 books, including the one we're gonna discuss today called Leading with Character, 10 Minutes a Day to a Brilliant Legacy. With uncannily similar thinking to Professor Delbeck, Dr. Lohr believes that each and every one of us is vulnerable to a serious lapse in character, even though we might strongly believe we are people of strong moral fiber. What we're going to be discussing today, then, is our need to confront the truth about the human species, which is, we all possess a dark side. In Dr. Lore's words, even the most holy among us are vulnerable to a moral collapse. As hard as that may be to accept in ourselves, Dr. Lore's book is filled with disturbing research which repeatedly proves the power too often brings out that dark side in people. That is, unless we've built up our muscles of integrity, honesty, and trustworthiness long before it's tested. And our discussion will be focused on the activities that will ensure your character becomes rock solid. Interestingly, Dr. Lore also happens to be a coach and psychologist to many of the world's most elite athletes, including professional golfers, Mark O'Mara and Justin Rose, tennis players, Jim Courier and Monica Seles, boxer, Ray Mancini, hockey players Eric Lindros and Mike Richter, and Olympic gold medal speed skater Dan Jansen. It is a true honor to have you join us on the podcast, Dr. Jim Lohr.
1: Thank you, Mark. I'm excited to be with you and all of your listeners, and I sincerely hope that we can create some value for your listeners, for your audience.
0: Well, that's a wonderful way to start this. And, you know, I left your book, and I'm certain as we get into this that you're going to add tremendous value because, You see the world in a very, very powerful way, and I think it's going to help. Um, Being a leader is very difficult to begin with, but having any edge you can get in terms of how can I protect myself and how can I strengthen myself to become an even better leader is really one of the cornerstones of this whole podcast. In, In reading your book, I thought... I'm really looking forward to having this conversation. So here we go. The first thing you say is most important in your book is that each and every one of us is vulnerable to lapses in character that could result in potentially disastrous outcomes. So I want to start there. Tell us what this means, why you believe it, and why is it really true for all of us? Because that's going to raise some eyebrows. You know,
1: it's so interesting that
0: we all have
1: this feeling inside that we're a person of good character. We believe that in spite of any evidence to the contrary, we're going to hold that ground. That's kind of, I would call nuclear material for all of us. It's the core of who we are. If we don't think we're a person of good character, we kind of lost the psychological survival battle. We feel like, you know, we're pretty worthless. So I can get into some of that more as we get through this interview, but it is a very big factor. And that's why most people don't want to go there. And that's why this book can be um, a little hard to get into to kind of break through that initial kind of defense that I'm really fine even asking someone to show up for a class that's dealing with strengthening character is almost an indictment of, hey, what do you think? I don't have it or mm-hmm. what's going on here?
0: Right. Or that's for other people.
1: That's for, uh, yeah, I know people who really need this, <laughs> but that's not for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, But every day you, you open up the Wall Street Journal, You can see all these, you know, very good people, people that have been around for a long time, who've been perceived to be the kind of some of the best of the best, both in terms of character and performance. And they've fallen from grace in a tragic way. And they leave so much tragedy in the wake of their downfall. But the book is filled with examples like Bernie Evers and Kenneth Lay and Dennis Kozlowski and Bernie Madoff and Harvey Weinstein and the the list goes on and on and on. Those are the big names. But we all know someone, even in our own family that we've known for years, who maybe got into an ugly divorce or something and all of a sudden something turned really badly where they started leveraging the health and well-being and happiness of their children, is the only way they could get back at their spouse. And they violated something that they believe is probably the most single most important dynamic in their life is their children. And they cross that line and they cross it frequently. Deborah Rhodes is a professor of law at Stanford, and she's probably the most cited scholar in legal ethics. I love her work. And She, in her book, it's called Cheating, she has a a little formula where 10% of the population, and this includes all the leaders, the great leaders, have what you might call a really solid character foundation. And they walk, talk, they really adhere, they're aligned in their behavior with what their principles are. About 85% of the population is struggling to just kind of stay above water and do the right thing to understand what the right thing is and have the courage to do it. And 5% are pretty much at the bottom of the rung and they really don't care about the more. They're just going to get what they want. And she also outlines often the kind of cost associated There's a trillion dollars, more than a trillion dollars annually lost just from the IRS alone over, they estimate, 450 billion. Business fraud is between 120 and 350 billion. Employee theft is between 50 and 200 billion. Inflating business reports. It goes on and on. But we don't like to think that happens to any of us. We like to think that we are people of great character. So the book I wrote to try to help those and to try to go at it in a way where it doesn't make you defensive, where you understand that we all have a flawed moral machinery and we don't even know where we got it. But I spent a lot of my time understanding why it is so necessary for us to do deliberate intentional work or we get pulled to the dark side. And so that's just some thoughts as we get started. But, you know, we're vulnerable. All of us are. And even if you're an ethicist, somebody that knows everything about ethicists, you also have to be able to do what's the right thing and knowing what the right thing is and doing it come from a different part in your brain. So it's a challenge and maybe the most important challenge we all face as human beings.
0: So let's take a step back and talk about character before we go too much further here. What is it and how is it developed? In your book you said, Thoreau said that none of us can dream ourselves into character right? So that's exactly. the 85% of us, and that we must hammer and forge ourselves once. So it implies that building a solid character takes time and much intentional effort. So I have a bunch of questions related to this, starting with the big picture. And you sort of hinted at this a second ago, but I really want to pin you down. Does society really care all that much about character these days? I mean, and is it really all that important? Well, you're not going to necessarily
1: have people really racing to the character side of things unless there are some real downfalls that cause sometimes just an estimable, incalculable damage. And when you look at the cost of poor character, of poor decisions that are ethical and moral in nature, it affects everyone. It literally affects everyone. And, and if you really care about character, if you don't think you do, just have someone start to question your character, and you literally will come out of the chair. And so we care about it, but we kind of assume that whatever my character is, I don't know how I got here, but it's something that I probably have to accept. I'm not sure there's a whole lot I can do about it, and I think I'm a good person, and I do the best I can. So it's a tough window to go through. It's a very tough door to open, but society and whether it's the pandemic that we've been through, it's tested people every day. We literally, we chisel one stroke at a time who we are in terms of how we treat other people, most importantly, under stress. Every decision, we probably make 10 to 12 moral and ethical decisions every day. We're not even aware of them. And everyone forms a little kind of specific component of who we are ultimately going to be as we evolve in life. And every bone in our body is stretched when we can no longer do the things we've wanted to do before. Our jobs, our health, our family, everything is under siege. And the same thing is true in the political realm. The emotions are running high. To what extent are we able to control the powerful waves of emotion that can completely overwhelm our moral and ethical, kind of what I would call best moral self. And in the book, I've outlined some 25 ways that this moral machinery that we depend on getting us home morally and ethically can be hijacked, where we actually get off the reservation and sometimes tragically. And it is because the system is flawed, has coding errors everywhere, And most people are unaware of how easily our moral system can be really undermined. So this book is an awareness tool to recognize when you are in moral territory, here are some of the things that may be pushing you in a way that may compromise what you really want in your life and who you really want to be, how you want to lead in these extraordinary times. And they truly are extraordinary times.
0: You know, but even if they weren't extraordinary times through the course of anybody's leadership career, they know they're in moral territory to use your language frequently. You're always weighing this decision. How is this going to influence me personally? And how is this going to influence the people that I'm managing? And if they're in conflict, then, you know, you've got the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other, and you have to come to some conclusion. And I think what I really wanted to pin down early on here is that, It's easy to lean into the devil side if you feel that you might be able to get away with it or if you're in a stressful situation, as you just pointed out. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons, but I've seen it through the course of my career where people made decisions that they thought, well, this is going to work out. And then, of course, they didn't. And they were labeled as untrustworthy or low character or, you know, ultimately even lost their positions because the decisions unraveled in the way that you described. And, you know, you have these statistics in the book that sort of, I think, pinned this down. Like These are CEOs we're talking about. So you've risen all the way to the top in your career. And you said in the book that according to the Harvard Business Review, from 2012 to 2016, there was a 36% increase in the number of CEOs dismissed for ethical lapses compared to the four years prior. This included fraud, bribery, sexual indiscretion, insider trading. On and on it goes. And then in 2018, just two years ago, CEO dismissals for ethical lapses exceeded dismissals for financial performance or board struggles for the first time in history. So maybe that's what you're talking about, about these are unusual times. I mean, how can you get to become a CEO and then blow up this
1: way? Well, the fact is we don't often recognize our vulnerabilities and there's so much pressure today. I mean, it's the first time in history that the number of people who have been dismissed for ethical and moral issues exceeded the financial performance or for board struggles or anything else. And when you think about that, why is that? Why is it that things are turning like this? When you look at the pressure on CEOs today, from shareholders. They have a very short window to start turning profits. They are pressed from every side, from stakeholders, from employees, from shareholders, from all of the regulations that govern their industry, from competitors coming at them from every single side. People that are showing up all of a sudden that weren't even on the horizon are literally eating their market share. And they have to survive. So they're looking at not just the survival of the company, but they're looking at their own survival. And they have a board meeting coming up soon, and the numbers are not that good. And they just decide to have a real brief conversation with their CFO that maybe we could leave off just some of that information so that it doesn't create panic on the board and panic with shareholders is, can we just kind of not include all of that data and we'll get it all straightened around in next quarter? And what happens is that small little kind of fudge factor that you might refer to it as begins to create a pattern that it's survival for you. And then you maybe are going to argue that I'm just doing it to help the company and all the employees I care about survive. I'm doing this for the right reason. And I know these numbers are going to come back, but I don't want panic. I don't want to sell off all this market share just because we had a little fluke in the earnings category here. And so the pressures on everyone, pressures on family, when you look at the pandemic, the pressures to survive. And we know that that's one of the major, major factors in how our moral and ethical decisions are made is the survival of yourself, which is very much about me, and then the survival of those that you care about. And most people are willing to cross a lot of lines if it's going to mean the survival of your family. And it's like, you know, I want to be a good person here, but I've got to tend to the issues and my values that I believe are most sacred, and I've got to make sure my family survives. Then you say, well, wait a minute. You have millions and millions of dollars in the bank. You're not working to eat. You have a long line. And then they start backing up, and you begin to recognize that they've built this. A lot of it comes out of things like motivated blindness. They're blind to a lot of the things that are actually happening because they're so motivated for success and their own self-interest. You know, their needs for conformity and for obedience, you know, these are powerful. Even people below the CEO, even though they know they're doing something that really shouldn't be done, but it came from a higher order, you have all this cognitive dissonance in your head around doing the right thing. And so you find an expedient story to justify it, and now you don't even feel bad about it. There's all this group think, well, everyone does this. I mean, everyone's cheating to get
0: ahead. Why are we so quick to rationalize? Because that's everything you've been talking about for the last few minutes has been rationalizing yeah, behavior. Exactly. So why is it that we're so quick to rationalize and accept that, well, other people do this and or your example, other people cheat on their taxes or I've seen other companies not fully report to their shareholders information like this. I mean, we, we just come up with that stuff quickly and just go, yep, and let's move on with it. Why do we do that? Like, what's the human instinct and what's the antidote?
1: Well, Dan Arley, in in his work in this area at Duke, I mean, he came up with a couple. I think he's really right on. We want to feel like a good person, but we also want to push the envelope as far as we can to get what we want and what we need. So there's this conflicting battle
0: always. You're talking about all of us here, right? Not just CEOs. This is all human beings. This is
1: everyone. Oh, this is everybody on the planet wants to feel good about themselves. They want to feel like I'm a person of good character. And they also want to be able to take shortcuts whenever they can and still feel good about themselves. And so the the measuring stick that we use oftentimes is how much can I get away with and not feel bad about myself? I don't feel guilty. And if you keep pushing that line, you can find that line moves significantly <laughs> from what you really thought it should be and now you're in dangerous territory and you wake up one day and say, how in the heck did I get here and you did get there because the machinery that you've been using is very vulnerable to corruption and it's your own corruption your own sense of what's right and wrong can get really really taken to the cleaners and all of a sudden now how are you going to explain where you are now?
0: Well, your definition of character is really an argument that we humans have a dark side that we not only need to acknowledge, but we need to keep in check. And so, the more we build our character, the more we establish our values, and we'll talk about a credo in a little while ago, sort of a personal values statement. But the work that we do in that regard is really what keeps what Errol was talking about, right? Which exactly. is that we want to have a good moral character, but we also kind of want to cheat if we can get away with it. That's you People saying, don't like
1: to hear that. People I know, don't like but, to hear that.
0: But that's what you're saying, right? We're all human, and this is what our it's int- human nature. It's
1: who we are are and we just we cannot avoid taking a look at it and that's why we need to shore the system up because we're always tempted to go as far as we can and still feel good about ourselves and we are so ingenious in making up stories and i call making up crap that allows us to do that and pretty soon we're in some serious territory
0: i love that language shore this up you know, we're only 18 minutes into this, but I'm certain that everyone listening into this is going, yeah, I've been down that road. I've, <laughs> You know what I mean? I think this is very relatable, but I think it's also really powerful that you call it out. I don't know that most of us really fully understood that we have these two sides, moral character plus the leaning into the taking advantage and cheating side. So shoring up is very powerful language. Part of your central thesis is that character strengths, such as integrity and trustworthiness and kindness and caring, compassion, respect, are developed in the same way that any muscle is developed. So the more we use it, the more likely we are to sustain that. And your research even shows that leading with heart and character is not a human instinct, which I think is sad but nevertheless true, and that it's more natural for managers to put themselves first and get their wants and needs met first. So with that as a preamble, what advice do you have for leaders and what are the steps that we must take in order to build character that's going to hold up under pressure?
1: Well, you really have a lot of issues there that I think are really important. I think it's so interesting that, you know, all the drama series, every television show then that's, you know, kind of a drama or so much of what you see in the movies is really pitting evil against good. That's what it all is, that we're trying to figure out how to get the good guys to win and take down the bad guys. And who are all these people? who are going off the moral and ethical reservation and creating all this. Who are the bad guys? If we could just go out and put a tag on them and get rid of the bad guys. But I'll tell you, the bad guys are us. We're all vulnerable. And those who stand up and say that they're invincible, that they are the icons of virtue, are almost always the first to fall we have to acknowledge the frail moral machinery that we're working with and really take a look at how in the heck did I get these values and how strong are they? What is my strength of my integrity muscle? How trustworthy am I really? What is my kindness under pressure, under the unbelievable demand that the pandemic has put on us? How caring and compassionate am I really? And can I hold up when the storm is most fierce? What happens to those? Or do you revert back to your own survival and that the me first kind of ethos? And if you don't do a lot of hard work, you're probably going to be one of those that falls on the side you don't want to be on. And we see it all the time. So I was very interested in my work. It's just the hardest book I've ever written by far. It's a 10 year dive into the character space. And I must tell you, I got there by accident. I had nothing as a psychologist that prepared me for this. I have a living laboratory I've had for years at the Human Performance Institute. We had probably now up to 400,000 people go through. I'm a data guy. I love to put one foot in the real world and one foot in the world of science. And we had all these people coming through that were trying to change their lives in important ways. And uh, we were trying to figure out, how do we get people to make changes? How do we do it? And when you get to the end of the line of things that are on there, a value list, what what matters most to them. And then once we know what that is, how do we build those? How do we build integrity or honesty or any of those things that they think are important? And it's so interesting. I call it the hidden scorecard, and it's come up in my life over and again. And I was unaware of it until we had all this data. And I would read everyone's at the Institute's work for years trying to make sense out of it. And I just got to a point where I began to realize something's going on that most people are unaware of. Mm -hmm. And, And I suspect that it's evolutionary psychology, really, where for thousands of years, we had to stay connected to people. We had to have trust. We had to care for them. We had to show kindness and respect for the people of our own tribe or our own unit. And that's how we survived. Yeah,
0: that's how the human species survived. You're exactly right.
1: And those that were one-offs who were cheating their own, who were not trustworthy, who showed no kindness, or when someone got sick, they didn't share food. And those are the ones that didn't make it.
0: They were banished.
1: They were finished. And so this was a big breakthrough. I asked people to describe in six words who they were when they were most proud of themselves. Absolutely the most proud. You know, basically when they were the best version of themselves possible and particularly under stress. And then I would have those collected and I would read them to the group. Everyone was astonished. There was nothing in there about winning or nothing about accomplishments, money, fame or anything. It was all about when they connected to others, when they were kind, when they were patient, when they were authentic, and on and on. And I thought, how interesting is this, that this is the best part of them? Then I asked them, what six words would you use to describe who you really were on your tombstone if they were in fact true? These are the words you'd like inscribed that represented who you were when you were here. And they put those down. And again, reading those to the group was astonishing. Everyone thought they copied from each other because they came up with the same thing. And ultimately, what it was was their connection, the way they treated others is the scorecard. No matter what else you do in your life, if you don't have those, you always have an empty soul. I've worked with 17 number ones in the world in their sports. And so often these are people who've achieved the pinnacle of success, financial success, fame, money. And they have the sense, is this it? There's a hollowness, not a feeling that this is fulfilling in the way they suspected it would be. But how many people have I found that actually missed that scorecard at the end of their life they wish they had understood? And so social connection, our treatment of others, and then we learned you can build those in the same way you can build physical muscle by investing intentional, precise energy in the muscle of kindness, gratitude, in the muscle of caring, in authenticity, or whatever it is, humility.
0: How did you help people identify their gap? So you've got these six words that they're most proud of, and then the six words that this is how you lived your life, this is what goes on your tombstone, here lies Mark, these six words, but there's a gap between what people aspire to and what people are actually living. So I'm imagining that you taught them to identify where their limitations were, right? Are you respectful? Are you kind? Are you caring? Are you nurturing? Right. Do you help other people? Is it about you more than others? All those kinds of things. So for our audience, Jim, what do you advise that they might do to start to figure out, okay, this is who I want to be. How do I know where I'm not succeeding today?
1: It's a very simple formula. It's a great question, Mark. And it really is the basis of just about everything that we learned at the Institute. And the first thing I want to know who you really want to be. I want you to go to the end of your life. What kind of person do you want to be in terms of how you treated others? What for you is the highest priority? Is it humility? Is it gratefulness? Is it trustworthiness? Is it being trusting? Whatever it is. And people have those priorities and we really dig in it, and we try to connect that to their purpose in life. Because if you're not those things and you reach the end of your life and you haven't accomplished that, your life has failed. And almost everyone begins to recognize I'm either on a path where I'm going to get there or I'm not. And so there's a big discrepancy. So the first thing is who you really want to be and are you on a track that's going to get you there? So we start with purpose, what you want. And then the second leg is let's face the truth. And this is a hard one. And this is what I'm trying to do in the book is to get people to look at the actual reality of what's happening. Where are you headed? We all have a trajectory in terms of patience and kindness and loving and really authenticity and humility and on and on. And let's take a look at that for real and let's remove the smoke and mirrors and let's just take a look. And we have evidence everywhere if we'll just stop and look at it. Once we see there is a disconnect, then the third leg of this is to invest what I think is the single most important resource we have. It's the thing that makes all change possible, and it is your energy. You focus your energy like you do on your bicep or your tricep or anything else you want to build in your physical body. Spiritual muscle, character muscle is built in the same way. You invest energy, and the more often you invest energy, it creates a neurological pathway, just like you create motor skills. And you travel that pathway frequently, it builds myelin. Myelin is the thing that actually retains the strength of that signal. And we build myelin in the area of kindness, myelin in patience. And wherever your energy goes, you are giving it life. You give life to whatever you give your energy to. If you want to have a world-class muscle, you have to go in and do a lot of heavy lifting.
0: How do you sustain it? So I make a commitment to devote energy to strengthening my kindness muscle. But it's, you know, it's a weak muscle right now. So how have you taught people to get over the inertia?
1: So again, once you understand where the discrepancy is, then we have to be very specific on what you want to build and we build rituals around that just like you have a training log with athletes we have a training log that actually begins to build this this incredible capacity that you want to have of integrity at the end of your life moral integrity or courage moral courage and those muscles can be built very very strategically and ultimately what this is going to end up is what i would call your credo the most important document you will ever develop in your life In terms of how you want to make moral and ethical decisions and the muscles you want to have manifested, most importantly, when you are in that crucible where you're making decisions, you're going to have to look at it very, very carefully. And that decision-making is probably not going to be just a spur-of-the-moment reflexive system of just, oh, this is what I think. I'm going with my gut here. Your gut is an important source of wisdom, but we've learned the gut is too often wrong. We don't know where it all comes from, but it has its own language and has its own response. The first moment of deliberation, which is a much more conscious and hard, it's called system two, by Daniel
0: Daniel Kahneman
1: Kahneman yes and that system too you start with the truth you start with the facts you have to get all the facts you can then you bring in your heart you bring in the feeling of you know you deeply care you activate those spiritual and those character muscles that actually define your highest level of value in your life then you check your gut and once you have done that you make your decision But you make no ethical or moral decision until you've vetted that. And those are going to be embedded deeply in your credo. And it's a habit. It's a ritual you follow. And you never stop building. Just like once you stop lifting, if you put your bicep in a cast, it's going to atrophy. If you put any of these spiritual muscles, any of these character muscles in a place where they're not getting much infusion of life from the investment of your energy they will dwindle they will atrophy and they will not be available to you when you most importantly want to do something important that demands those muscles be activated so you're never complete and for the rest of your life you'll always be learning deepening and trying to understand what you need to do to go to the most important side of your life It's what I call getting home morally and ethically, because when you look at what matters most to you, if I can get you in the sanest moment, this is how you're going to define a successful life for you, for sure.
0: So tying up some of the things we've been talking about, one of the things that I really want to make sure everybody hears is that. When we're under stress, that's when our character flaws are most likely revealed, right? That's the moment. So if you want to identify how you are under stress as an indicator of what you might want to work on, ask people around you, when I'm stressed out, how do I behave? Because I've seen people just completely go sideways. And so this idea of building muscle and never stop building leads us to that our character is revealed in these highly stressful moments. And you make a reference to it, but I know you know the backstory on this, which is that Captain Sully Sullenberger, when he landed the airplane in the Hudson River about a decade ago, and he saved everyone on board, and he made this instinctive decision to land the plane in the Hudson River in New York City. But there's a tremendous backstory this wasn't just like, oh, I only have one option here. This is a guy who had thoroughly prepared himself for this moment. Can you quickly tell us that story and how it relates to everything you're talking about in terms of building character?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a great story and it is occurring on many fronts everywhere in life, whether it be in the military battles, in throwing himself on a grenade to save your friends, but even everyday moments where you actually put others first and you actually think about others far more importantly than you think about yourself. And I call that a form of heroism. And it's those moments that are going to come in our life that are going to show up suddenly that we have to make you know a very quick decision and in a sense we move from this system too which is a very reflective and very deliberate state of operating we're almost we've rehearsed it enough we've done it enough we kind of can come to a, a very instinctive response and it's magnificent when it occurs you actually you acted immediately in the service of another and putting your own safety clear to the background. And the Sully story is, you know, you might think, well, that was a brilliant act of flying and that that makes him a hero. But I look at that much differently. You know, if all those folks had not survived, would he still be a hero? And where does heroism actually originate? And I believe it really starts in very small things where he devoted himself very, very fully engaged in becoming the best pilot he could become and taking care of his mind and his body so he's clear thinking and he adhered to all the safety guidelines, things that a lot of people just get lazy about and haven't really spent the energy to do what is right because they just there's an easier path. He could have taken a lot of shortcuts. But that act of heroism which saved those lives was not one act, it was thousands of small acts that enabled him to do what he had to do in order to save the lives of so many people.
0: What are some of the small acts? I've read interviews with him where he describes this, and this is like a 30-year process of preparing himself for this moment, right?
1: It's years and years of dedicated devotion to being the best pilot you can be, and not so much for you, but to care for other people. And even working out, staying fit, making sure that you eat right, that you have done all the work that you need to in your pre-flight routines, that all your checklists have been done and done very thoroughly and with full devotion to the responsibilities that lie before you. It's not unlike a CEO that can make this decision about having to furlough a thousand people, or having to make a tough decision, how do I move forward and save this company, realizing what I'm up against? What is the right thing to do here? It's not suddenly in that moment that he comes with a brilliant solution. It's years of training that he has done to kind of put all of this, what's the truth? What does my heart say? What's my gut say? And what is the decision that I must make to live with what I believe is the right thing to do in this moment. And that came from years of hard work, diligent training to be the person that has to be extraordinary to really find an answer that is right in the situation.
0: How did he know to do that? In other words, what was the driving force? Do you have any sense? It's a drive
1: we all have. We want to be the very best we can possibly be. It's our best self. It's our best moral self. We're all chasing something. And if we're chasing it for the right reason, and it's not about ourselves, it really isn't about him being a super pilot or gaining fame or money. It has something much deeper that it's a commitment that I cannot let others down, you know, by having too much to drink before I get on the plane and no one will know it. No one will find out. You know, I haven't really been taking care of myself recently. I'm not getting the sleep I need. I've been going out too much. But this occurs in every level of our life. We're not fully engaged at home because we've not done the right things to preserve our energy. And all of a sudden, we're like a dead person walking with the people that matter most to us. And those decisions are moral and ethical decisions. When you work out at four in the morning so that you have more energy to be engaged with your sons and daughters and spouses and partners. That's a spiritual act. You're not doing it for you just to be buff and to look good. You're doing it so that you can actually be there present fully for the people that you care about. You're driven from the right purpose. and At the Institute, that's what we got so excited about. We realized that purpose drives everything. If you have no purpose, life is a complete nightmare. If you have the wrong purpose, life is a complete nightmare. But if you have a purpose that extends far beyond your own self-interest, and actually the welfare of others is the driving force behind you, that is where your sense of peace, that's where your sense of fulfillment, and that's when you're going to be the best you can be in that context. It's what I finally discovered. I wish I could have discovered much earlier in my career, the connection between character and fulfillment. And that is that unwritten scorecard, so to speak. And then we found that sustained success in a high performance arena is always related to character strengths, not just performance character strengths, but ethical and moral, more importantly, that if you are trustworthy, if you have high integrity, if you have a sense of humility, that you actually are not finished baking yet, that you're still learning, you can learn more. These become the cornerstones of sustained success what we all want. We don't want to be a flash in the pan. We want to do something that actually we're proud of and that we can sustain because we're doing it in the right
0: way. You you mentioned Deborah Rhodes and the percentages, the 5% that are dark and the 85% of most of us with basically living our lives without fully thinking about who we want to be. I think purpose is something that ultimately people arrive at for the most part, but in terms of defining a character, we kind of go on autopilot, right? Yes. Yes. And so as I'm listening to you, the word that just keeps coming to my mind is intentional. That's what Sullenberger was. He was intentional about being the best. 100%. And so if you're intentional about, I think that's sort of the leg up in everything that as I read your book and as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, you know, If you just make it your intention to be this kind of a person, it becomes that one step after another and you build that character over time. So it's not impossible, it just requires a commitment. I wanna transition to something that you've done unique and something that I wanna explore with you. You launched a tennis academy In your introduction, Jim, I mentioned the professional athletes that you've been coaching in your career, and I'd love to explore that with you in a separate time. But as background for that, you created this tennis academy for elite level kid players, people that aspire to be the next Andre Agassi. And so... What you taught them, in addition to mindfulness techniques, like how to think and how to recenter yourself in between shots, in between points, if you will, which I think many of us don't even think to do. But what you've also done is to intentionally teach them character. So I'm imagining these are like 10, 12, 13, 14-year-old kids, and you could be teaching them their forehand and their backhand and game strategy and mindfulness and leave it there, but you've added in character at an early age. What was the inspiration for this? What have you learned, and what can we all take away from that?
1: So this was a six-year experiment that we did, and this was the result of what we were finding in our living laboratory, that character was a driver of extraordinary outcomes in terms of performance. And that if we had great character, not only would they perform better over the long haul as tennis players, but they'll perform better in life. And if we could leverage tennis to build extraordinary character muscles, both performance and moral and ethical, they would get far more than just become great on tennis and i would watch spend hours i spent six years at the nick Bollettieri tennis academy as a hmm. i set up a whole research institute there and i saw all kinds of players on the courts they would spend hours on the courts but they weren't fully engaged and what they were learning you really wonder where their energy was going they were angry frustrated they were like out of it they wanted to do anything after a while than what they were doing and So with the result of all the information we were gathering from our little academy at the institute, we decided to do this experiment. And every single day, each person had a journal and every single day they had to work intentionally on a specific character trait that they wanted to improve. So it could be full engagement, that they were 100% there and they were conscious of it. They were going to put energy, invest energy in their ability to be fully present here and now, whether it was a match, whether it was in the drills, whatever. And they made that commitment in their journal. Then they would come back in and write whether or not they were successful in investing extraordinary energy in that dynamic, as well as hitting balls, forehands and backhands, and volleys. And then they had a conversation with their coach about that for that day. And then they had to think about what they wanted to continue on that path or they wanted to find something else. So they found ways to work all the muscles, just like you need to work all the muscles of the physical body if you're going to be a, a really extraordinary athlete. We tried to get all of it over a period of six years. And what we found was pretty astonishing. The results, these were became extraordinary Young men and women.
0: Irrespective of tennis, you mean? or
1: well, I mean, irrespective of tennis, and we listed all the accolades and all the tournaments and all the rankings that came out of this group. and we didn't go out and recruit people. We just took them from the local neighborhood, basically. One played for Harvard and another one for West Point. Almost all of them got college scholarships and they were all standouts. But for me, more importantly,
0: let me just interrupt. So when you brought them in, they weren't already elite tennis players.
1: They were just people who lived around Lake Nona. I mean, they were just people that we brought them in, and they became part of a six-year experiment.
0: You're kidding. So I I guess I was thinking that the common denominator was these kids were already... What most academies do
1: is they go out and recruit. They have overnight, they keep the kids there. These are all just from normal families. They This is a day program. This was not a live-in academy, and we brought kids in that had parents who wanted their kids to be successful tennis players, and we said, wait a minute, we're going to do something far more important than that. We're going to teach them how to build character, and we believe it will also enhance their ability to sustain a great track record of success in the sport of tennis. So
0: did you get any pushback on that
1: before you go on? Well, the parents didn't have any idea what we were talking about. I mean, they're <laughs> going, well, what, what are we doing here? Well, I want my kid to get a national ranking. I'd like to him get in college. Exactly. And so we had to work a lot with parents, and we began to take them through what we're doing. and they began to recognize that these are some of the most important lessons. And then when their kids started to do well, it was like, well, I don't know what they're doing out there, but as long as they're getting better, it's okay. (laughs) I don't care what they talk about. If they want to talk about philosophy or anything, as long as my kid is really doing great in the tournaments. But these kids are not going to become, this was my whole point with all the parents and with all the kids, even if they played number one or number one for West Point or number one for Harvard or anything else, they're not going to go out and make a living in tennis. There's going to be a life after tennis. And for me, I didn't want them to sacrifice their character to be able to cheat their way to the front line, to be able to take shortcuts and to be disrespectful and to have humility thrown out the door and then not be grateful to anyone to just go out there and look like they're king and queens of the tennis world. I didn't want that to happen because as soon as you're out of tennis, what do you do with that package? It literally closes the door. People can pick up those big egos, that arrogance. And where did it come from? It came from tennis, came from sport and didn't help you become a better human being and a better leader at Johnson and Johnson or at any other great company. It actually became something you had to kind of overcome. So I wanted to look at this in a much bigger, I wanted to leverage the stress of tennis, leverage the stress of any sport to become a better, stronger human being that actually every day is an opportunity to put some energy into building integrity muscles, to build, I can trust you, I can depend on you. I believe that you can treat your teammates even though there's a rivalry going here and you can treat your competitors with respect and actually show that you can rise above it. And in the end, you wanna know something? It isn't even about you. It's about the impact you have on the lives of others that's gonna matter. And the more kids get that, it takes the pressure off. They win or lose the external contest, but they always win the inner contest because they know they're trying to raise the bar in terms of who they are as a person for the rest of their life.
0: Jim, we have a podcast tradition where we take a break from the discussion and we move into what we call the heartbeat round. What I'd like to do now is ask you about a dozen questions that relate more to you, your personal interests, your influences and ask you to answer them quickly and instinctively, in other words, in a heartbeat. You ready to play? I'm ready. (laughs) All right. A well-known leader who you most admire for the quality of their character.
1: It's my father. And my father was an extraordinary achiever, but a man of the greatest integrity. It was the greatest gift I had in my life were my two parents.
0: Well-known athlete who you most admire for the quality of their character and their grace under pressure.
1: Roger Federer.
0: One book you wish all of us would read?
1: Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Brilliant, brilliant book.
0: Come up about 40% of the time. So (laughs) there's a common denominator with my wonderful guests here. So the quality that derails the most leadership careers? More concerned
1: about what they achieve than how they achieve it.
0: Character flaw to be on guard for the higher you go in leadership.
1: I've got this thing solid. I've got it. I've wired up right uh, in terms of my moral and ethical character. I don't really need that stuff. I'm, I'm fine.
0: Your synonym for the word heart?
1: Caring, compassionate, or kind, loving.
0: One subject you think all leaders would be wise to bone up on?
1: I think it's what we don't typically think of. I think when I wrote an article, co-authored an article in the Harvard Business Review, we were able to get the word spiritual into that piece. And spiritual is defined as the energy associated with your deepest values and beliefs. And I believe that importance of the spiritual dimension, purpose and leadership. Why the heck are you doing this? What is the real reason behind it? And make sure you're chasing it for the right reason, but we're all chasing something. Just make sure you got it right and you know the purpose behind it.
0: Life lesson you wish you'd learned earlier. Oh, I wish I had
1: understood the role character plays. I just didn't have that wired up in my training and even for years in work, that its role in happiness, well being, and sustained performance, that. That was an accident in my life, and it's quite obvious now, but I just am very thankful that I've been able to get to that point, but I've got a lot of data now that helped me get there for sure, and a lot of really smart people.
0: A cultural value every organization should have. Moral integrity. trait you admire most in other people. Humility. Skill improvement you're working on right now.
1: Well, there are two things, patience and positivity in these troubled times.
0: Your all-time favorite song. <laughs>
1: You'll laugh at this. <laughs> I to think about that. And it's, uh, this is crazy, but Tina Turner, the best.
0: There you go. Magazine or newspaper you never miss reading?
1: Harvard Business Review.
0: Something you think we all should do at least once in our life?
1: Suffer failure.
0: And a prediction about the future you're pretty certain is going to come true?
1: Artificial intelligence will surpass human cognition. Human intelligence is going to be a whole different world.
0: Wow. I would love to explore that with you, but um, we don't have time to, but yeah, uh-huh. it has my head spinning. Thank you so very much for going through these with me, Jim. I have one last question I want to ask you before we go. In a nutshell, what would be the takeaway for our listeners in two roles, one as leaders and two as parents?
1: Well, here is the question I, I love to ask. Where did you get your source code for what is right and wrong in your life. How did it get formed? Where did it come from? What are you checking to make sure you're doing the right thing? Most people, all the people we went through the program said they're not sure. They think they got it from their parents. Well, sometimes parents get it really wrong, or they got it from some religious teachings. Well, religion doesn't always get it right. There are lots of flaws there. Some say, well, I got it from life. I got it from the culture I was raised in, could be from the gang that I was raised in and they have it right. So I take them through all the things that might have contributed to what they believe their moral machinery for right from wrong. And I said, let's don't go there. Let's create an intentional kind of formulated, very, very carefully designed something that is yours that becomes your source code for making decisions that really are going to impact your life and more importantly, the lives of others. So we build a credo. And I believe that is probably the most important work anyone will do to develop what they believe to be the most important document that they will use for always referencing what they should do in this moment and how they can move closer to being the best moral self they can be. And at the end of their life say, you know, I lived a life of integrity because I know that was important And I fed that muscle consistently whenever I could to make that happen. I didn't just wake up and hope that I'm going to live a moral life. I'm taking this intentionally into my hands and I'm going to be a leader and I'm going to lead first and foremost with integrity, with honesty, with a sense of purpose that really isn't about me. It's about taking care of others and humility and on and on. And so... Those are the issues for me that make the most important ingredients to a successful life.
0: Imagine the work world if we had leaders that did this work, if this was expected of leaders, right? You know, if we were really encouraging people to do this hard work and see themselves as a work in progress. And, you know, interestingly, you mentioned Pamela Smith, who's at UCSD, my alma mater. And she said that people who have more self-centered values tend to be more selfish as they gain more power, which is blatantly obvious to most of us, right? So if you start off thinking about yourself, when you get power, you're going to think even more of yourself. And I'm wondering if you've ever given any consideration to the hiring process for managers and how organizations can avoid uh, selecting people into management who really, it's all about them. It's about their promotions. It's about their growth. It's about their money, incentives, bonuses, their recognition. And if I can help other people along the way after that's all taken care of, fine but that's sort of the inverse of my theory of how we need to be leading people. And I I know that it's yours as well. So how do we identify those people and how do we identify the people who really truly are here to, you know, help others as much as they're here to help themselves?
1: You know, I had the opportunity to get involved with the culture of the Blue Angels and Commander Dom at that time was what I thought was an extraordinary leader and represented so much of what I was trying to impart in terms of building a team that was completely connected to their purpose, to their mission, and a very high stakes, very risky mission that almost defies human understanding. To become a Blue Angel is like one of the greatest compliments anybody will ever have as a pilot. So I was always curious in terms of the selection process, what did they use to really, because they've had years and years of opportunity to figure out what it was. And I asked Commander Dom, I said, what is the number one issue for you in terms of selection? I said, is it competence as a pilot? You have to be the best of the best? He said, no. He said, for me, the number one issue, we have a lot of competent people, but he said the number one thing that there cannot be any exceptions in is humility. He said, arrogance is what gets people killed in uh, high stakes arenas. And he said, humility is number one, competence is number two. And he said, if you can't have both, you have no shot at becoming a Blue Angel. So we have to understand what's the pattern, what's the history What's the narcissistic quotient of those people who are driving for success? Why do you want to be a Blue Angel? Is it to put a big feather in your hat? You want to have another accolade that you can walk around and say, I I was the best of the best? Or are you subverting your own self-interest in the interest of a team that has nothing to do with you except you have to perform with precision? And the same is true with the CEO or anyone else as you indicated that research what they found is if you're all caught up in yourself and you have power you will abuse that power in unbelievable ways and you'll never know that this was actually part of a flawed character that involves your sense of perspective about who you really are and how much more you have to learn you have to learn from others you always have to have it. i don't care how good you are i don't care how confident you are confident That is not balanced with humility is arrogance, and arrogance is what jams up the ability to do extraordinary things in corporations, in military circles, or a surgeon who has a surgical team who has arrogance and treats everyone else with disrespect because they are not the surgeon. This is simply a nurse, or this is simply an anesthesiologist supporting my work. Those are the teams that often have tragic failures. And it takes us back to the importance of character. It takes us back to how we treat other people. And if we get that right, the rest of it will probably come.
0: The Blue Angels happen to fly over my house every October. I don't know if they're going to be doing Actually, they didn't do it this year. So thanks, COVID. But I see them in the maneuvers that they're making. And I'm just sort of, you know, the idea that humility is first and foremost on the selection criteria, is really just a very powerful reminder for what we should all be looking for, not just in ourselves, but in the people that we select for leadership roles. If you can demonstrate some humility, you're going to be open to learning, and by opening to learning, right, and sharing and understanding your own humanity, it's very, very broad. Jim, I'm going to leave it there. This is an absolutely fantastic interview and discussion. So on behalf of my audience, I just want to thank you so very much and I wish you tremendous success with your book.
1: Thank you so much. I uh, really found our conversation exciting and I hope our uh, audience has found some value in it as well. But thank you, Mark. Thank you.
0: Best to you. Before we say goodbye... I want to mention that this is our final podcast of 2020, a year none of us will ever forget. I want to especially thank all the truly wonderful guests that have joined me here this season. I repeatedly marvel at the breadth of their wisdom and the timeliness of their insights, and if these brilliant and inspired people have in any way enriched your life, I beseech you to introduce our podcast to your friends and colleagues. Producing this podcast has been a true labor of love, all tied to my mission of helping to influence a major change to workplace leadership all around the world. And because we end 2020 with an audience in 144 different countries, my dream is that leaders in every one of them are now managing their people with greater care, support, respect, appreciation, and heart. Because of COVID, many of the podcasts this season were produced by just two people, myself and my sound engineer, Eric Oz. So I wanna sign off by thanking him personally, as I'm certain you can actually hear the quality of his remarkable work in every episode. And my final thanks go to you, my audience. I'll just say that I'm incredibly honored by your support and I'll leave it there. I now wish for you the happiest of holidays and a transcendent new year. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off with the constant reminder that when you lead from the heart, your people will follow.